Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. All right. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everyone here. I am humbled by uh, all the people here, uh, and some, especially some of them with such uh, senior sobriety, and I'm, uh, I'm almost embarrassed to open my mouth in this group. Uh, I'd like to... Don't be. Yeah, thank you, Nancy. <laughs> I... Um, I often I like to start my, my talks with uh, the set aside prayer. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to do that. And uh, you can uh, say amen at the end or join me if you like. Dear God, please set aside anything we think we know about ourselves, about our disease, about the big book, the 12 steps, the program, the fellowship, the people in the fellowship, and all spiritual terms, especially you, God so that we may have an open mind and a new experience with all of these things. Please help us to see the truth. Amen. So, yeah, so I am Harvey, and I am a grateful recovering sexaholic. Uh, I can't tell you how grateful I am. I, um, I was born in Toronto uh, to two uh, Holocaust parents who uh, um, produced a particularly dysfunctional home uh, that, I was, that I grew up in. Um, uh, those of you who have experienced uh, Holocaust parents maybe recognize this, but uh, we uh, we had a pretty crazy place. Um, we locked our doors three times every day, our windows every night. We uh, kept uh, suitcases in the front uh, front uh, cu- cupboard. Uh, each of us our own suitcase. That if we had to rush out at any time because uh, the new Nazis might show up or whatever. Uh, we had uh, books that were hollowed out. Each one of us had our own book with a few thousand dollars hidden away so that we could uh, grab the book and take the money if we needed it so we could escape. Uh, my parents lost their entire families, uh, both of them. Uh, my, my, my dad did have one brother who survived, but my mother lost everyone. Um, and my mother, turns out, was a narcissist, and she is still is actually a narcissist although she's 100 years old and she's kind of lost it a bit. Uh, but she spent most of her life being a narcissist. And uh, I grew up in that kind of an environment. My, my dad was um, very uh, uh, emasculated by my mom. Uh, he didn't have a voice uh, in, our, in, his, in their marriage, uh, except when he got drunk and then he'd get angry. Um, and eventually, when I was 12, uh, he took his own life uh, and we all found him uh, hanging downstairs in the basement. And it was a traumatic experience. Uh, It wasn't my first traumatic experience, I don't think, and it certainly wasn't my last traumatic experience. But I certainly grew up with trauma, Um, a lot of uh, bullying. Uh, I was a a small, uh, smaller boy. um, And I was uh, pushed ahead in school because I, I guess I was bright. Before you knew it, I was in grade five and I was uh, barely uh, nine years old and uh, I was wee little small boy and um, I was also into piano and I I grew up 
with a huge amount of uh, parental expectations that I was supposed to uh, to try to fulfill. And of course, I uh, trying to be perfect is a probably a big mistake. I certainly didn't succeed. Um, and uh, but I grew up with an expectation that I was supposed to be perfect, and uh, it was a hard place to be. Um, and uh, it, it presented a lot of a lot of issues for me. And I grew up, and I've I've carried that around until I got into program. Um, I'm same sex attracted, um, and uh, but I wanted to live uh, a uh, a life that was in integrity with my uh, my Orthodox Jewish traditions, which I acquired after my father passed away. I became religious, and. Um, I really wanted to get married and have a family and do all the, the normal stuff. And so I did. I lied to my wife. Um, at the time, I was uh, I was already uh, acting out uh, and had been for, for many years. But, uh, you know, the rabbis that I was close to told me it's all going to be better. Everything's going to be fine once I get married. Um, I'm sure we've all heard that story. And uh, it was uh, it didn't work out quite like that. And within weeks, months of getting married, I was acting out uh, throughout my marriage. Uh, in 2012, my wife uh, finally confronted me with the uh, knowledge that she had figured out that I was same-sex attracted. And by that time, I was out almost every night um, uh, till all hours of the night. My wife was a sound sleeper, and I would show up at home at two in the morning and slip into the bed. Uh, and uh, she either pretended that she didn't want to know or did know, or I don't know. But uh, at the time, for most of the last 20 years of our marriage, I was acting out with escorts uh, twice a day, maybe more, sometimes multiple escorts. Uh, I had, uh, towards the end, gotten further and further into humiliation. And uh, so I, I think I qualify. <laughs> That's uh, my qualification for, for being here. Uh, so 2012, my wife uh, confronted me with this, um, with the understanding that she knew that I was same-sex attracted, and she uh, said, I, "I don't want to throw you out. I want, I want you to stay in our marriage, but you need to do the work. You need to do some work around it." And she, she didn't know I was an addict. I didn't know I was an addict. I'd never, and even though I'm a dentist and I'm a medically trained, and uh, I knew all about alcoholism and drug addiction, but I did not know a thing about sex addiction at the time. Um, so I started with a therapist immediately and he got me uh, somewhere. He helped uh, a lot with anxiety and, and some of that perfectionism stuff. Um, but he had no idea. He was not an expert in addiction. And he knew, and even though I told him what I was doing and what my life was about, he, uh, he did not suggest any, anything uh, as far as dealing with my addiction. And a year and a half later, I, um, my wife said, you know, she confronted me again. And she says, you know, I don't think you're doing anything about your same sex attraction. And she was right. Um, and uh, you need to you need to do something about this. So I started with a, another therapist, uh, January 5th of 2014. His name is Bobby. And he lives in Houston. And uh, Bobby is himself a, uh, a member of SA. And he is also same sex attracted. Um, married with five children, and he has, uh, he did very well. Um, and we started on the 5th of January, and I told him my story a little more than what you've just heard. And he stopped me mid sentence and he said, Harvey, I got to ask you a question. I said, Sure, anything you want. I said, He says, Is, uh, is sex a need or a want in your life? And I looked at him and I was, I, I laughed and I said, Are you kidding? 
I said, isn't it, you know, it's a need, isn't it a need for everybody? Everybody needs sex. Everybody needs, I mean, that's a need, isn't it? And he looked at me and he said, you know, I think maybe you should think about going, finding an S fellowship in Toronto. Uh, so I did um, immediately, you know, uh, you pay $200 an hour to a therapist, you better listen to him. That was my motto anyway. Uh, so I started with SA uh, within that weekend and, uh, and the rest is history. Uh, January 7th was my first meeting, and that's what I uh, call my my uh, my uh, sobriety date, even though because of other things that were going on, I had been arrested in 2012, just after my, my wife had discovered this uh, lifestyle that I was living. Uh, I got arrested for stuff I did 35, 40 years before uh, with uh, men that boys that I had been um, uh, mentoring in a choir that I conducted. Uh, and uh, and it came back to haunt me in 2012, and I pleaded guilty in 2015. By then, I was uh, I was in I was in recovery, so we'll get to that in a little while. But um, so I joined. Uh, I went to my first meeting, uh, January 7th of 2014, um, and I've been sober. Actually, I was sober a bit before that because I I was so sure that the police were watching everything I did, and so I had pretty much uh, shut down all of those uh, activities. Um, pretty much. And uh, so I, I'm sure I'm a, probably a little bit longer, but I, I, like I said, I start from the day that my first meeting, uh, that I attended my first meeting. So I, um, I was pretty desperate. Uh, like I said, I was seeing escorts twice, sometimes even a lot more often a day. I was beating up my staff to get out for lunchtime to be able to see somebody at lunch. I was showing up late for work because I would see somebody on the, in the morning on the way to work. Um, it, and in the evening, I would tell my wife I was going to study and instead I went downtown and I acted out again. Um, it, it, was, it was really insane. Uh, and of course, as, the, uh, as we all, I'm sure, experienced, I, I tried to stop every day, um, but I couldn't stay stopped. Um, and I, so I came to my first meeting and it was a lunchtime meeting and I sat in a room with, with four or five other men, no women. And, uh, it was scary. It was really scary, but I very quickly found what I call the very first gift of, uh, desperation. And, and that was fellowship. Uh, I found friends. I found others who like me had had struggled and were struggling with uh, the sex addiction that I now realized I had it wasn't difficult for me to uh, to get over denial I don't think I had any denial by then um, I sat in the room I couldn't I didn't even take my coat off I didn't even take my hat off for the first three weeks I I was pretty pretty frightened um, but I I knew I was home I, I think I already knew I was home um, and it's uh it's kind of a nice place, you know. I, I kind of feel like Dorothy, you know, in the you know the Wizard of Oz, you know, when the, when the witch says, you know, you've always had the opportunity to go home, you know, you just had to want to go home. So I, I realized I was home. Um, after three weeks, uh, somebody walked into the meeting who was also a, an Orthodox Jew, and he walked right up to me and he said hello, and I said uh, in 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 Yiddish, Shalom Aleichem, he said, and I said excuse me, and he goes. You're not fooling anybody, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, he took my number, and I took his number. And uh, his name is Jack. And uh, till this day, I owe him 
so much. I can't even begin to tell. I, I, there's nothing I can even say that would even come close to appreciation for what Jack did for me. Um, I was, of course, white knuckling at that point, and uh, and he carried me. He literally carried me in this program. He was not my sponsor, but he was my friend. Um, and going to meetings, uh, my my therapist had suggested on that first visit that if I'm going to go to meetings, I should immediately tell everybody that I'm same-sex attracted. And I did that. And I have continued to do that. Um, and he said that would be very important because uh, you need to get over the shame. Uh, and shame is uh, is certainly uh, very excuse me, very much part of my existence, was very much part of my existence. Uh, I lived in shame. Uh, and of course, the, uh, the Siamese twin of shame is blame. And I lived in blame. I blamed everybody for my life. I was a victim. I, I had all the classic, uh, all the classic life, uh, life decisions I was making were rooted in shame and victimhood. Um, so I had Jack and Jack started me on gratitude lists. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's the second thing that I'm great. That, that, that was one of the gifts, uh, learning to find gratitude in life, the attitude of gratitude that we talk about in this program. It was, uh, it was a new place for me because I had not lived in gratitude ever. Uh, as I said, I was living in blame. Everything was about blame. So finding the attitude of gratitude was, was incredible. I had now had a, a group of friends that I, for the first time in my life, I could come and sit in a group and actually be honest. And I think that's what meetings are about. That's certainly what meetings were about for me, to go to a meeting and actually not fear saying what was on my mind, being absolutely honest with everybody in that room, not worrying about being judged, not worrying about somebody thinking that I'm a disgusting creep, a pervert or whatever. And, uh, and, and learning very quickly that I could treat these people like human beings without seeing them as sex objects and uh, potential uh, uh, sex partners. Because uh, up until then, every male I ever met was either somebody I wanted to have sex with or didn't want to have sex with. And uh, coming to meetings and, and realizing that I don't have to do that anymore um was was pretty exciting and jack with my gratitude lists he was able to help me understand that there's a cognitive dissonance if you're trying to believe that you're a piece of junk which i often believed at the same time as you have to believe that god is doing or whatever your higher power is is doing so much for you and have so much to be grateful for uh, it's pretty hard to hold those two uh two contrasting ideas into my your head at the same time. So I've started to believe that I might not be a piece of junk. And I think uh, that's certainly another gift um, because I had, uh, I had this ego centric world that I had to create and live in because I was protecting this low self-esteem being that I called Harvey. That was me. And uh, I started not having to do that so much because I was my self-esteem got a little better with every with every day, uh, with every gratitude list, with every meeting that I attended, with learning to be honest, with uh, exercising the honesty muscle that I had. It was um, it was really really very different. I um, I kept going. Um, I did not get a sponsor till April. Somebody walked up to me and said, I'm going to be your sponsor. 
Um, that's not the way I suggest doing that. If I if I have a choice, I never go up to anybody and offer it to be their sponsor. Uh, I kind of believe that God sends me people, and and I uh, wait for them to come to me. Uh, that's just the way I do it. Um, so he said he's going to be my sponsor, and he lasted about two weeks uh, until he lost his sobriety, and then I lost my sponsor. Um, and uh, in those two weeks, he he bugged the heck out of me, uh, and he kept saying, "Why don't you know? You need to change your phone number because you're still getting a heck of a lot of texts from old acting out partners, old escorts that were looking for money and looking for my attention." And um, I was, I fought that. I fought that for another two months. Um, I, I kind of liked that uh, those connections, even though I wasn't acting out. I. Uh, I really did. Uh, I was intoxicated by texts that, you know, somebody cared enough to want to be with me and wanted to see me. Um, I realized at that point that I have a sex addiction and I have a sex and love addiction. And I eventually got to the SLAA rooms uh, for a while um, because of that, uh, because I really did have this, this combined, this two, two, two pronged uh, addiction, uh, anonymous sex, so lots of it, and variety is the key. And at the same time, this desire to be loved and cared for by someone who really cares about me. Uh, and I wanted to be their mentor and I wanted to save them. And I did. I had over the 20 years, four or five men that I uh, put through school and cared for. Um, and, you know, today I understand that all of that was garbage, uh, but that's what I was. I found another sponsor in June and I uh, actually did my first step in August. I, I shared it in a room um, and it was profound. I can tell you every person that was in that room, their names. Um, I don't know where some of them are anymore because of COVID and because some of them left the program. Um, but I hadn't done a step yet, barely. Step one in August. And I was having a hard time because... I was looking for someone in the rooms that had what I wanted. Um, I lived absolutely in a state of distress. My tolerance for distress was big zero. And uh, that's really what, uh, you know, Gabor Mete, who is a, uh, an expert on trauma, says that uh, we shouldn't ask why addiction. We should ask why pain. And I, I know I was living in pain. Pain, life was painful, and I, uh, uh, I didn't know how to live with pain, and I didn't know how to live with emotions. Um, anyway, the first weekend of September, I went to an open cocaine anonymous meeting, and the guy who moderated that meeting was my, his name was Cameron, and at the end of that meeting, I had been in a room with forty people who had what I was looking for. They just had a light behind their eyes. And I had really never seen that in any of the essay meetings that I had attended until then. And I went up to the moderator, this Cameron fellow, and I said, I shook his hand and I said, thank you. This, that was, this was the most amazing meeting I've ever been to. Incredibly inspiring. And I'm not letting go until you promise to be my sponsor. Um, and, he, uh, and he agreed to be my sponsor. And he took me through the big book um, of the AA. And um, I did the steps rather quickly. Two months, I was done. And, uh, you know, he, uh, he helped me find a new God, uh, a new experience with God, a new relationship with God. Um, and that was another gift of desperation in my, my mind. It certainly has been one that I live with every day uh, since then. 
um, my previous experience with God was uh, was a very dysfunctional one. He was an angry, punishing, perfection demanding God, very disappointed in me, uh, disgusted with me, who's long ago in patience has turned to me and turned him away from me. And he had left me in charge of my own prison because he didn't have, want to have anything to do with me. And I was the warden of that prison. And I was about punishing myself. And when I got to step two and I found a God that is uh, both my fan and my, and my coach, my coach and my, and loves me unconditionally, uh, unconditional love was something I had never experienced and never knew existed. Um, and that for me is another gift, uh, the gift of understanding that unconditional love exists and should exist and, and is available. Um, and I found that, it, that I, I hadn't realized it at the beginning, but I believe today that uh, the rooms that I attend are full of unconditional love, um, which uh, which is why some people talk about, you know, people in the program as being God with skin. Uh, I think uh, that's for me, that's probably true. But I found a God uh, that I could trust, finally trust, because trust is something, again, I didn't ever have um, for anybody, for myself, for God, for other, others. I didn't have that. Um, and I found uh, the love uh, that was available, uh, the true love that's available for me, for me, the child of God that I am, that I believe I am today, and I identify that way, and I believe it's important for my self-affirmations. Whenever I get on a meeting, I always say I'm a child of God, uh, and I'm worthy of recovery. Um, and that's those are both very important to me. Thank you. And uh, so I... I uh, I found all of that. I found a God. And today I, um, I know, again, another gift that I found is um, that the only relationship that I have to care about is the one that I have with him. Um, I've lived through a lot of shame around that, that, that arrest and that conviction. Uh, it's affected my community uh, relationships. It's, it's certainly affected my children's uh, relationship with me, although it's really very good today. Thankfully, uh, but it wasn't at the beginning. There was a lot of uh, a lot of crap. Uh, it was difficult. But today, I know that I'm only defined by my relationship to my heavenly Father, and uh, and I and I trust Him, and I know that everything that's happening in my world is exactly what is supposed to be happening. And learning the gift of understanding that my God is one that's unconditionally loving has allowed me to learn that there are three possible answers to God from God when I ask for something, when I pray. Either he's going to say yes, or he's going to say not now, Harvey, or he's going to say, Harvey, I got something better. And uh, being able to find that has been an unbelievable gift. Being able to learn to pause and to live life, uh, as the book says uh, towards the end of the chapters on the first 11 steps, I... Uh, I have learned that I can pause, uh, that I can live life, that I'm no longer living on that rat wheel in the cage. I'm not locked in. I have found the freedom that uh, that is available uh, to us in this program. I, um, I am so grateful for the sponsees that I have, that I have had, that I've taken through the steps, and the, uh, and the knowledge that I've recently found that there is no limit, I believe to the love that as human beings we can we can uh, demonstrate and we can share with others uh, it's limitless i think god gives us an 
unlimited opportunity and ability to bring people into our hearts and and love them. Um, and I am so grateful for all of those connections that I've made uh, over the years. I have a, a really amazing fellowship of people. I think I have over 800 people on my phone. Uh, of course, not all of them am I in touch with all the time or regularly, but I have a, a really, really beautiful fellowship that's built, that's grown around me. I have grandchildren, great-grandchildren in the program. As we talk about it, I uh, certainly don't have 20 and 30 years like some of you here, but uh, I am grateful for uh, for that. Today, I I wake up, I have a program, I have a, I've become disciplined. I learned to uh, to live life and, uh, you know, and I pray in the morning as soon as my alarm goes off, I meditate three times a day because just like in taking an antibiotic, I need to do that. I meditate when I go to sleep at night and I, I don't suffer from terror dreams or so, or lust dreams anymore. I, um, I, I managed to, uh, to, to really be able to, uh, to get through the day. Uh, I learned to accept that I can have emotions today and not be frightened of them. Uh, I don't live in distress anymore. Um, so I am really, truly grateful for, for all of those gifts. Um, and uh, as I said, I'm Harvey. I am a grateful recovering sexaholic and, uh, and I pass. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Daniel. All right. So Akiva Sexaholic, thank you, Harvey. Really funny because by your voice, I recognize the fact that we met on a phone meeting and I had your phone number. So you were always one of these people who I figured like, you know, if I need a boost, I could call. Uh, one time at one of the conventions, we had a meeting of children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. It was an S fellowship convention. And I was like, wow, why would it be here? And that idea of sexaholism being an outlet for trauma, as I worked my way through ACOA and things like that, I began to heal in the way that was a little more elaborate because in that state we say, let we will let others love us until we come to love ourselves. And that's what I heard in your share. And that really resonated for me. Um, and that idea that that gratitude and um, and misery cannot they, they cannot be roommates. That was that was really powerful for me. And that's what that's what keeps me sober constantly and consistently. And this idea of self love and self care and you know, the sponsor slipping and staying sober, nevertheless, it's been my life story. I don't really have any questions. I'm really excited to hear you. Really excited to be back in the home group. Thank you. Thank you, Akiva. And I see Nancy up next. Hi, my name is Nancy Sexaholic. So good to hear your share. Um, I'm also Holocaust survivor, my, both my grandparents aside my mom's whole family actually um and i can hear in your voice i don't hear victimhood in your voice and i'm wondering if you can share any additional tips about moving away from that victim status and i'll pass with that thanks yeah thank you for the question nancy um yeah, so victimhood uh, is right up there, and you know, in step four, we we look at we we talk about selfishness and self-centeredness, and that self-centeredness uh, 
you know, I, I, I win. As long as I want to be a victim, I'm going to win uh, because uh, if I do what I'm supposed to be told, uh, I'm good. And if I don't do what I'm supposed to be told, I can be a victim. Um, I'm, I, I'm also a, um, a survivor of uh, sexual uh, um, whatever. And uh, so I used to wear that, that badge on my shoulder. And I'm a victim. Be nice to me, you know, and uh, I, I don't do that anymore. Um, I, I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, if, if I, if I, if I'm a victim, uh, it means I'm not worthy. You know, I, it, it goes with, for me, that goes with the shame and it goes with the, uh, the low self-esteem. Uh, and it was, it's where I like to live because I was a people pleaser and, you know, I had a lot of codependency stuff. So wanting to uh to be a victim was something I, I i really enjoyed you know swimming around in that pity pool and that self-loathing um getting into program you know as i think we probably all understand when you get to step four uh you become right-sidedness you know you do some right sides to miss and uh instead of being i asked my i remember asking cameron i said you know i i think i'm schizophrenic you know because sometimes i'm up here and sometimes seconds later, I'm down here and I go up and down like a yo-yo and, and I'm on a roller coaster. And uh, and he said, wait, 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 we'll do step four. You'll be OK. And uh, and he happens to have a interesting approach um, as the book speaks about uh, taking inventory you know, on page uh, 64 or five, whatever. Um, I um, he likes to take inventory of assets before he starts on the defects. Uh, and, and the resentments and the fears and all of that stuff. Uh, so he started with me with, with assets and I, and that served me well because I would have been frightened out of my mind to do a step four without that. Um, and I think that uh, that's probably why I managed to find, by the time I got to step four and having found the God and found the rooms and found the fellowship, I didn't really want to be a victim anymore. You know, so that's how I would answer that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nancy and Harvey. The floor is still open. I don't see any virtual hands up. So if you would like to just chime in with a question or a share. I'll, I guess I'll jump in real quick. Uh, I was, uh, I'm Daniel Sexaholic. Uh, thank you very, very much. It was uh, an amazing story that you, you told. And I was, I was very interested and happy to hear you talk about trauma and Gabor Mate, very familiar, um, and your generational trauma as well as personal trauma. And then the search uh, for a therapist who could, um, I guess, go along with the 12 steps. And I have personally found it very difficult. And I finally found one, a therapist who has been through what I've been through. He's male, he's roughly my age, and 12-step friendly. And I'm wondering what your experience was with, with other, other therapists, or are you, do you still work that part of the, uh, the equation? Thank you. Good. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, so I still see Bobby. In fact, I saw him just an hour before we we started here today. Um, I uh, I did 
so I'll, I'll talk about the trauma a little bit because uh, I, I think that's really, really important. Uh, I would almost venture to guess that everyone here um, has experienced some trauma, uh, has a special sensitivity, uh, which uh, might even have been genetic. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I think I believe that it is. Um, but uh, it doesn't really matter. Uh, we, I suffered from, as I said, distress intolerance. I, I, I suffered from rejection, sensitivity dysphoria. Um, my, uh, I was early, early on, I was diagnosed as an ADHD uh, person, which uh, I'm not even sure if that's true. I, I'm not sure which came first, the chicken or the egg. Um, I just can tell you that uh, having been through the program and gotten into recover, my recovery, my uh, my ability to focus and to be there for others and to give eye contact has uh, changed in an amazing way. Uh, I did a lot of trauma work. My uh, Bobby is uh, is well trained in EMDR, um, and I did quite a bit of EMDR work. Um, and uh, you know, went through some of the early uh, sexual uh, stresses that I had. Uh, my father behaved not so well with me when I was three or four. Uh, and then I was, well, doesn't matter. Um, uh, I don't want to trigger anyone. Um, but I, uh, I had a lot of trauma, of course, around my father's suicide uh, and then a lot of stuff with my mother and, and her narcissism and uh, growing up with a golden child older brother and, uh, and uh, having been bullied as the middle two, two brothers, me and my twin brother were both the bullied uh, members of the family. And my younger brother turned out to be the silent one and the, 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 uh, the uh, um, you know, the, uh, he was invisible. Uh, and we, so we have them all. <laughs> we get to see everyone, every kind of narcissist child you can imagine. Um, so the child of a narcissist. So anyway, the trauma work that I did really, really changed my life. Uh, it made it easier for me to, to work. Uh, the program. Um, I think my my sponsor, my, my my sponsor, when he met me, said, "Wow, you know, your therapist has really prepared you really well," and, and I think that's true. Um, so I'm I'm certainly not a purist. I'm just I'm not just a twelve stepper. Uh, I I have to admit that I and I and in fact be grateful for the work that, that my therapist has helped me do. Um, I know lots of the bad stories about, like you were suggesting, the therapists who really don't are not 12-step friendly, uh, have not been there where, where I have been. I mean, it was really great having somebody who I didn't have to explain everything to because they just get it. And we know that. We know that experience. You come to a room and you don't have to explain everything. We get it. We understand what we've been through. We understand the internal unmanageability that we've all experienced uh, by when we get here. Anyway, I pass. Well, thank, thank you, Harvey. And I see Marty, you're up next. Yeah, <clears throat> Marty, uh, thank you so much, Harvey. A uh, couple of things. One, um, I, I saw in you living an Anne Frank lifestyle, uh, even when you weren't even there. That had to be pretty, pretty traumatic, I think. But the one thing I wanted to ask is, uh, with your same-sex attraction, and, you know, being married and all, how is that relationship now with your wife, Ben, now that you're in uh, recovery? Um, I know you've made it, you said something about, okay, with your kids and grandkids, but how about with, with your wife? What's that like now for you? 
All right. Good question. Um, so my wife and I are still married. Uh, we celebrated 41 years of marriage in July. Um, the marriage is, uh, is, uh, has, has evolved. Uh, I have to, I have to share, uh, something just as a, as an intro for this. Um, the last 20 years of my acting out career, whatever you want to call it, um, I was no longer sexual with my wife. Um, we have five children. Obviously, we, were, we had a sexual relationship. Uh, I would consider myself, I, when I got married, I was probably bisexual. But my acting out career uh, just pushed me further and further uh, along the continuum that I was almost totally disinterested in in my wife at, the, at a certain point and and then because of my acting out i i just felt that it was it was uh murder for me to to have be sexual with her because we don't use any protection in a in a religious home uh and uh i was so sure that my acting out meant i must be aids positive i must be hiv positive i'm going to die and i didn't want my children to be uh um, orphans from my mother and dad so I stopped having uh, any relations with her for the last 20 years of our marriage um, uh, until I got into the rooms. And thankfully, um, that has improved uh, uh, without getting into too much detail. Um, I, I have to admit, my wife has been slower to do her own recovery work, uh, but she's getting there. Uh, she's certainly come a long way in seven and a half years, seven and almost eight years. Um, but it's uh, it's a process. You know, everybody has their own uh path and uh, I'm committed to staying in the marriage and she's committed to staying in the marriage and we certainly have uh, a, a really much more fundamentally beautiful relationship today. Uh, so I'm grateful for that. I pass. Thank you. Nora, you're up next. Thanks. Um, can you guys hear me okay? Just making sure. Okay, thanks. Uh, yeah, just want to have Look at my screen. Yeah. Okay. So thank you so much, Harvey, for sharing. I really appreciate your share. And um, yeah, I um, I really like this expression, the gift of desperation. When I first heard it once in a meeting, um, it really just hit me hard. Um, and I just really appreciated it. And I, I, I just want to share about something and ask about it at the same time. I've been in the fellowship for two years now, and uh, I don't have a home group. I've never been to a face-to-face -face meeting. I don't have any in my city. So I'm, I'm kind of too dependent on online meetings. Um, I have a fellowship in my country, and I'd consider our local online meetings my home group. Um, but, yeah, I, um, it took me a while to take the risk of self-disclosure and to like really open up and start talking about myself and um, yeah, just letting other people know where I am. And um, I think I'm much better on this place, but I'm still, ha I still have a lot of fears of being judged. And um, that that's mainly where I am right now. And uh, some fears, yes, I do entirely feel home. That is really true for me. And, it's so true for me that recovery tastes good anywhere. Um, thanks, Luke. So my question is, can you just elaborate a little on your growing on that part when you came to feel really home and uh, didn't really fear anymore being judged? 
So thanks. All right. Thank you for the. Oh. Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, when I came into the rooms, uh, as I said, I was a people pleaser. I was uh, living um, four or five or six different persona. I call them holograms of Harvey, none of which were the real Harvey because nobody got to see the real Harvey because I was so frightened of anybody seeing him. Uh, so I had the Harvey that was the husband. I had the Harvey that was the father. I was, had the Harvey that was the dentist. I was the Har Harvey who had the community um, and maybe even a few more. Uh, certainly the Harvey that was the acting out partner to all these men and paid for sex and all of that. Um, and, and it was a very, very hard life to live because I, you know, I'm juggling all these persona, all these holograms of me, none of which are true. And it's, it takes a, a heck of a lot of energy to, uh, to juggle all the lies. Um, and I was living lies. And uh, I found it particularly exciting when I came into the rooms and learned that I could, at least in this small little group, um, finally be who I was. And uh, along with that, of course, again, the therapy side of this was uh, taking, you know, taking uh, understanding that I had this little boy inside me that I had hidden away long ago uh, to protect him. Uh, and I needed to, uh, to work on that. So I had the benefit of, of good therapists uh, who helped me um, become the ideal support, as he puts it, for my own little boy. Uh, and becoming that ideal support and knowing that I had this room, these people here who were part of that team and became part of that team and we're happy to be part of that team that that made it all worth uh you know worth doing and 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 the and the the gifts of of having my little boy come out you know when we would play piano together and i would take him on walks and put him on my shoulder uh you know this all sounds crazy but that's what it was you know and uh finally having the, uh, the, the trusting myself to be his father and to take him out and to be that ideal support was really really helpful so I hope that helps. Thanks, Nora and Harvey. Uh, next up, we have Buddy, then Luke. And if you have fewer than 30 days, uh, feel free to raise your virtual hand. So, Buddy, you're up. Hey, thanks, Dan. Um, thank you, Harvey. I'm Buddy. I'm a recovering sexaholic. Harvey, um, thank you for talking about the trauma. And I, I had to chuckle when you, you said you were humbled by so many people with so much more time in the meeting today. Um, I've been sexually sober in SA for, for 23 years, but I've only been recovering from my trauma for about two and a half years. Um, I lived in a very deep depression for 55 years of my life because of the childhood trauma, uh, uh, a near death, my near death, my brother's death, um, my dad's alcoholism. And, and I was fortunate. I sought outside help. I got a, uh, a professional to help me, uh, which was real good in the beginning. Unfortunately, as I worked through my trauma, I pulled her down into hers. And she lost it. 
um, which then re-traumatized me all over again. That turned into a real mess. Um, today, I'm beginning to make progress. Um, just at 23 years sexually sober, I'm just beginning to learn how to love myself. And it's still a, a, a challenge. It's this is the, the healing process for me is is pain. Yeah. Um, my my prayer today, I pray to my mom and I pray. I say, Mom, if you won't let me die today, just teach me how to live. Teach me how to deal with this pain as I struggle through it. Um, so 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 don't discount the amount of time time you have in this program. Um, we are where we are. I, I don't know. I see Luke. That's my one minute. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. Thanks. Thanks, buddy. Uh, Luke, you're up. Hi, Harvey. This is Luke. Great to, to hear you. And we saw each other two years ago in Madrid for the international convention also. Thank you so much for coming over from Canada to it. Um, yeah, I, it's amazing each time how many details are different, but at the same time, how many things are, are I can relate to also. My mother's father got killed in a concentration camp in Germany. And um, so that's a link and also the trauma. I, I, I'm still, I'm 50, 53 now. I'm still, um, I still have a lot of trauma and uh, I did therapy before I got in SA, but it was like, I was acting out almost every day. So it, it didn't work well. And now I, I, I started therapy last week again. So I hope that this therapist, that it will, that it will be the right fit and uh, that we can go on. Um, one question is, you said about, about the persona and the holograms of Harvey. Yeah. So I would call it different egos. Yeah. I, I notice now more and more that I'm, that I brought it into the fellowship also. Yeah. Often I'm reacting out of, out of ego and I don't want it. <clears throat> but I do, I do see this ego coming up the whole time, also in the fellowship. So do you relate to that? And do you have any, um, any tools for that? Thank you. Yeah, thanks for the question, Luke. Um, so, yeah, I, I remember when I was really, really early again in early my, my early work, probably until I got into recovery, probably the first nine or ten months, um, even sitting in meetings, I would often sit there and think about what amazingly, incredibly exciting, thoughtful, you know, profound message can I give tonight, today, right? <laughs> right? I want to be a people pleaser, even to this group, you know, and, and make sure that what I'm going to share is going to be going to blow you all away and going to make you love me and care about me and, uh, you know, and, and, of course, that's all crap. Uh, but you know, so I I can probably uh, relate with to what you're saying. There was definitely that persona uh, when I came in. So what changed? Um, I I think I actually I remember somebody coming up to me early on. Well, not so early on. Maybe in the summer uh, after seven or eight months, and he said to me, "You know, 
um, you need to stop thinking while people are sharing. I guess he could smell the, you know, the the the, <laughs> the wood burning or something going on in here. He could see that I was not listening and I was not focusing on the people who were sharing or the readings. I was already, you know, starting to, you know, cook whatever I was I was going to say. And and he walked up to me one day and he said, you know, Harvey, you got to stop that. You know, you got to start focusing because you know what? God is in this room. And if you listen, there's a message in every meeting for you. And you're missing that because you're so busy, you know, Com contemplating and you know constructing what it is you're going to say and and actually I have to tell you I've learned that in my relationship with my wife um, I used to be thinking out you know what am I going to answer her while she was already while she was having what to say about something I would already be sitting there you know starting to think I wasn't really listening um, and I guess you know we can add that to the list you know that's another gift. I've learned one of those principles that we live by, you know, the 12 step tells us to live in these principles, you know, in all our affairs. I want to change the word affairs. Everybody says that's not a good word for an essay member. <laughs> Can we change that? I think we could have a meeting right now. Um, anyway, so uh, all my whatever, <laughs> all my life, um, I've learned how to listen and not to be contemplating and thinking about what the answer to my, you know, what it is. And, and it's, it's helped me to become more and more real. And I, I think maybe that has to do with humility. Maybe I don't like to, to offer that I'm somehow more humble today than I was. I, I, I'd like to think I am, but you know, I think once you say you're humble, you've just lost it as far as I could tell. Anyway, I pass. Thanks, Luke and Harvey. We have two more hands up, Yaakov and Christina, and that will probably take us out of time. But if you still have a burning desire, perhaps if Harvey can stick around for a few minutes after the meeting, maybe we, in our virtual coffee, we could talk about it. So, uh, Yakov, you're up. Hi, uh, my name is Yakov, and I'm a uh, recovering Sikhahali. Thank you so much. So thank you so much for the share. Um, I wanted to ask, in the end, you said that you meditate three times a day. And that when you meditate before going to sleep, it keeps you clean for the night. And um, when I was not sober, I never in my entire life had um, anything in the night. I would sleep these three hours. I would like after seeing movies all night, I would sleep really well. And only after starting to get sober after like a month, the first time I started fantasizing in dreams. And uh, people told me that it's okay, and I'm accepting it, and praying. And that's what I've been doing now for the last year. But I mm -hmm. see that my praying is really, please, God, keep me sober for the night, because it's terrible if I wake up and I'm wet. And I'll be happy to hear about that. Thank you so much. So having been uh, such a chronic acting out person for so many years, uh, I don't ever remember having a wet dream in my life because I was masturbating before I even had anything to, to, to eject. You know, it was just, uh, that was me, you know? So uh, I don't, I don't have, but I, I have had one or two since I got into recovery and it's almost always, well, I can tell you, it, it's always been uh, on a night when I was particularly busy and tired and I didn't do my nightly work routine. Um, 
the um, I think the meditation for me, I can tell you, has been very, very exciting because it it uh, you know we have a brain uh, and and our brain retains every silly memory that we have. Every little what we didn't even realize was a lust hit. You know, I drive along and I see a guy on a bike, and I used to I used to turn the corner and follow that guy on the bike. So thankfully, I don't do that anymore. But I see the guy on the bike, you know, and I, for a second maybe I'm I'm getting there, but I, it, obviously it doesn't register even sometimes. But so when I get to meditation at night, I'm clearing the cache, C A C H E. Uh, you know, I'm clearing my brain uh, of a lot of those things that I probably, some of them un, unintentionally, even subconsciously picked up along the way. And I cleaned that out and it really, really made a change in my life. I was a, a huge future tripper, uh, both from the anxiety side and from the sexual side. And uh, and it really, really changed my life. Um, so, uh, you know, it, that that's my, I, I, I do it in the morning as soon as I get up. I pray and then I roll over on my bum and I actually have a timer set. So I don't, if I, just in case I fall asleep, because sometimes I do. Um, and I meditate in the morning. Then I have my, my staff knows 4 PM, no staff, no patient for 15 minutes. I have an extra 15 minute time that I want to use. And then the last one is before I go to sleep. So that's, that's how it works for me. Pass. Thanks, Yako and Harvey. And we just have a little bit of time, Christina. If we could go go quickly, we'll we'll finish up. You're on. Yes, thank you, um, Christina. Sex and last addict. <clears throat> and I I am detached. Um, I've never been in a place where three persons tell that. They have parents or grandparents who've been um, victims of the Holocaust. And as a German, I I react with guilt. Of course, this is in my story. <clears throat> and I'm deep touch from your share that your father made suicide. Yes, I'm, I'm sad. And I do not, there are so many thoughts and, and, and feelings in my head. <laughs> I, mm. This topic is um, is in my life. I, I and I I'm grateful that my parents and the family of my parents were no Nazis, but my mother. Ah, oh, time. Okay. I do not know what to say. Uh, uh, thank you for sh for everything. Thanks. All right. Uh, I'll quickly, if you give me test ten few seconds, uh, I, I would t I would tell you what what has helped me uh, with a lot of my history and a lot of my life is uh, again because of understanding what God has for me and what has He has done for me all my life. I can appreciate 
the experiences, the things that I used to feel terribly guilty and knew that I was a sinner and things that I had done and all of my life and depression and all of the things that I lived through, I see them now as lessons and even sometimes as even as gifts. And I can appreciate, yes, there is a lot of crap. There is a lot of stuff that I lived through. But today I understand that I would not be the person I am if I had not experienced all of that, had not lived through all of that. Uh, and, and that somehow gives me a little bit of comfort in knowing that, uh, you know, God had a plan. Uh, and I know he did. I pass. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.